This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batchelor. Ukraine crisis. The Polish government offering its MiG-29s to the Ukrainian government under siege. The transfer from Poland to Rammstein Air Base in Germany onto Ukraine. Stopped or paused by a remark from the Pentagon that this ambition was not viable. I welcome John Bolton, former National Security Advisor to the President, former Ambassador to the United Nations for the President, writing most recently at Time magazine about deterrence. John, my understanding of deterrence is that it stops something before it happens. Therefore, what we have here is the question of deterrence by Putin. Putin is deterring the West. Did Putin contribute to this not viable remark at the Pentagon? Good evening to you, John. Good evening. Yes, he did. And uh, the the point of the article I'm, I'm making in time is that uh, we, we tried, uh, President Biden tried to deter the Russians from invading and he failed. And that, that's people can talk all they want day and night about how unified the NATO alliance is. It wasn't unified. It wasn't strong enough to stop this tragedy. And while we may be imposing strict sanctions on the Russians, we're not happy that, well, it's, it's too bad they invaded, but we're really hitting them with harsh sanctions. That's not the point. The point was to prevent all this from starting, and, and we failed at that. And now, ironically, uh, uh, it's the Russians who are deterring us. How are they doing that? Because they're making threats and they're using uh, fears and intimidation and, frankly, false logic on the part of a lot of uh, Westerners to, to make it look like uh, almost anything we do would be so offensive to him that we, be, we would be immediately at all out war in Europe. So so this question of the planes ties into that. And uh, people are worried, certainly at the Pentagon, uh, that somehow it would look like a NATO act of aggression and we'd be at World War Three automatically. That that's what their concern is. That delights Putin's heart. Once upon a time, we were the arsenal of democracy. You know this history very well, John. The arsenal of democracy was the second war. In the first war, we sold munitions. We were happy to help with the allies against the German and Austrians. And we provided the foodstuffs to keep Britain going in the first war and the second war. We were not worried when doing that before we got before Pearl Harbor and before the declaration of war in 1917. We were not worried about what? What Germany was going to do. We were concerned about the war. We were concerned about the crisis in Europe, but we weren't concerned about being attacked. Is there any logic that says if we give arms or provide a route for MiG-29s from Poland to Ukraine, that that's going to lead to a war, John? Where Where's it written that because history doesn't work that bang, bang way? Yeah. Well, look, this is this is the argument that people uh, are using, for example, against the no fly zone. And it's a total non sequitur uh, because there are obviously some dangers involved for NATO when it does anything with respect to this conflict. Uh, and yet the administration has boasted of all of the intelligence support we're providing to Ukraine, of, of the cyber warfare teams we've got there, of the thousands of javelins and other weapons that we've shipped in uh, to the Russians. If Putin wanted a pretext to say NATO had committed aggression uh, against Russia, which, of course, would be a lie, but but it's the pretext he's looking for. The pretext is already there. The argument here is that these planes would fly from NATO territory into Ukraine. And, you know, that's that's how you got to get them there. You're not going to roll them down a highway. 
and I think what the Poles were trying to do was obscure it a little bit by sending the planes to Germany, which I, I don't know what the Germans would say about that. But, you know, how do people think the Javelin missiles are getting into Poland, that they emerge from the bottom of the sea in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and suddenly uh, get into Ukraine? No, they're being shipped across the borders from other NATO countries. This would simply be not putting Javelin missiles on trucks or trains. It would be flying the planes in. It's the same thing uh, to provide aid to the Ukrainians. So I don't understand what the hesitation is, but I think it's fear of Putin taking offense at it and uh, immediate all-out uh, general war in Europe. That, that's what the non-sequitur is. The nuclear the, the, remark by Vladimir Putin uh, some days ago, and then the news that they were deploying elements of their northern fleet, and then the news that the Chernobyl reactor had been cut off from the grid, and then the news of an attack in some, fa- uh, some fashion against the Zaporozhye. Those were all meant to deter us, did they, John? They have. They certainly have. I mean, when when the uh, the the idea that um, Putin had said he was going to enhance the alert status of his nuclear forces, you'd think we were already at nuclear war. And yet, as the heads of the American intelligence agencies testified yesterday and really confirming reports in the press, there was simply no sign of any change in the disposition of any Russian forces after Putin's remark. It was a pure propaganda shot. Uh, the Zaporizhia reactors being in danger, you'd think the Russians were blowing them up. They, they certainly acted imprudently. There's no doubt about that. But it's also the reality. There was no leak of radiation from any of the six reactors there. You could go on like this. We are self-limiting out of uh, fear of Putin's response. Now, look, in a war, anything we do is going to cause some dangers, uh, some risks to us. And, and you have to make careful decisions. But it is simply wrong to say that taking any risk uh, leads automatically to the worst possible outcome. And, and that's that's the that's the false logic that's being employed. We're told from London today that the defense secretary, Mr. Wallace, has approved shipping star streak high velocity missile systems to ukraine this is the best and the most recent they have to bring down aircraft now if a star streak in the hands of a ukrainian or a volunteer brings down a russian jet is mr putin threatening to attack britain is that what he's going to do john bomb london grad no absolutely not so if you can ship those kinds of anti-aircraft weapons why can't you ship aircraft themselves uh look putin has said uh, as well, uh, among other other deterrent statements, he said economic sanctions are a form of warfare. Well, all right, aren't we aren't we uh, eager to put even more sanctions on? Uh, so, if Putin wants to escalate, he's we just talked right here in this this uh, short period of time of six or eight pretexts that he has to do just that. And and if people simply take any. A blink of his eye as being an indication he's going to launch nuclear warfare, he wins at no cost. The no-fly zone. Right now we have news of a massacre in Mariupol. We do know that there are hundreds of thousands of non-combatants, women and children. The no-fly zone would provide them security to exit the country. Is that ahead of us, John? 
Well, a, a no-fly zone, at least a humanitarian no-fly zone over some part of the country, maybe the western part, might help stabilize these uh, these flows of people. Over 2 million now refugees have crossed Ukraine's borders. 2.3 million, I think, is the latest figure. It's projected that's going to go to 5. Uh, that's 10% of Ukraine's population. Uh, this this is a human tragedy. It, these are women and children. Uh, it's moving out of your home with only what you can carry on your back is a is a terrifying experience. Uh, they don't know what their fate is going to be in refugee camps. They're not the safest places in the world. Uh, their their husbands and brothers uh, are left back home to fight. I mean this this is th- this destabilizing effect of these refugees and displaced persons inside Ukraine work to Putin's advantage. So are we going to do nothing to try and stabilize that? Are we really going to sit by continually and watch this happen? That's what some people think. I don't I don't make the other argument. I'm not arguing there are no dangers here, but I'm saying for those who complain about the no fly zone, what's your other alternative? Let's hear other suggestions. John Bolton, former former national security advisor, former ambassador to the United Nations, writing at Time magazine. I'm John Bash. Stay tuned for more of CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. John Bolton was the top United States representative to the United Nations under George W. Bush. Under President Trump, he served as national security advisor. And while he and Trump had since had a rather strained relationship, there's little doubting that Bolton understands the chess game being played by the more dangerous world leaders. He joined Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer, out of Chicago. So what about this business of a no-fly zone that's being bandied about and whether, even if it was enforceable, is it judicious? Let's try and start from basics because I think that's usually the best way to reason to a conclusion. Does the United States still believe that peace and stability in Europe are in America's interest? Uh, if we believe that, then we believe in a strong NATO. What does a strong NATO do? It does what the Romans said. It does what George Washington said in his first State of the Union message. It does what Ronald Reagan said. It's peace through strength. Or as the Romans said, Siwis Pachum. Parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a strong NATO, but which is threatened, not by aggression against one of its members, but by aggression against a country that the fall of which would affect its members, Poland, uh, Romania, Slovakia, the Baltic republics, do you care whether that country is invaded or not? The answer is yes, we do but not if it's too inconvenient. And so I think what's going to happen, uh, absent something more, is a lot of brave talk and insufficient action. Well, but but so do you think a no-fly zone is something that uh, NATO should agree to enforce? Well, again, let, let, me, let me back up. You're asking me in move 22 of this chess game, what yeah. would I do? And it's a fair question. Uh, my answer is the last 15 moves have been bad. Right. We shouldn't okay. be at this stage. Right. Uh, we but are. I think there's a very, yes, that's true. Uh, but it's it's worth reviewing the history of the mistakes that have been made so we don't make them again. 
Right now, I think a no-fly zone in the western part of Ukraine would make sense uh, to try and stabilize the population there, to uh, try to deter more refugee flows. Uh, over 800,000 people now mm-hmm. could go as high as 5 million. Um, I, I think that's just going to be incredibly disruptive in eastern Europe. Uh, is there risk? Yes, there is. Uh, if you're just content to have uh, the Russians grind Ukraine into rubble, then, then fine. We shouldn't do anything. Well, what about, can you tell us what you know about that 40-mile Russian convoy that's on its way to the capital? Well, we, we, we know a little bit about it. The Pentagon believes they're running out of food, F-O-O-D, food, uh, and gasoline. So if this is the powerful Russian army at its best, uh, if we gave the Ukrainians those planes uh, that the Poles wanted to give them, if we gave them more anti-tank weapons, if we had given them drones, uh, we could turn uh, the Ukrainians could turn that convoy uh, in, into a burning field. But, but uh, that apparently is not going to happen. Do you think a no-fly zone enforced in Western Europe could salvage the Zelensky regime in Ukraine? Does, it, does, does that provide them the breath and uh, space they need to actually repel the Russians and salvage Western Ukraine? Or, is, uh, or are we just buying time, I, I guess would be the question. Well, I, I personally don't think the Russians really want all of Ukraine because I think they know they'd be buying real guerrilla warfare if it got to that point. I think what they want is eastern and southern Ukraine for uh, for historical reasons and because Putin wants control of the north shore of the Black Sea. And he's, he's very close to getting that uh, already. Uh, you know, the, the issue here is whether people basically agree with the argument in the clip you just played that if one Russian soldier fires one bullet at one American and we respond by doing anything, we're, we're basically going to nuclear war. It, it's not true. Uh, there, of course, there's risk here. And the question is, uh, do we think that the impact on Europe of the instability and the danger caused by this unprovoked aggression is worth an effective response? And it's not just a European question, because we know that China is watching very carefully. Uh And if you're a citizen of Taiwan, you're very worried that Ukraine uh, will fall and China will learn the wrong lesson. This is CBS Eye on the World. Here's John Batchelor. Ukraine crisis. I welcome George Friedman, the founder and chairman of geopolitical futures to comment on what we can see so far, given fog of war, of the Russian plan and how it is being executed in distress. George, you are you write that Russia has three columns in the initial plan to hit from the south, from the east and the north. Three armor columns. Was that wise, given how the war is gone? Good evening to you, George. I think it was a superb strategy in 1944. Uh, at this point, it doesn't work that well. So he's got massive armor that are supposed to converge in the center of the country. And his problem is, how do you manage that large a force, hundreds of miles apart, to get to the right point at the right time? And second, how do you fuel it? The problem of tanks is that they are fuel hogs. 
the process of delivering the fuel is sometimes more important than managing the tank. And he really wasn't able to deliver the fuel. What we saw with the northern group did, stalling out on the road toward Kiev from Belarus, uh, had a 40-kilometer paralysis. So this was an attempt to launch an armored attack against an enemy that didn't have armor, was only an infantry force. And it was poorly managed and poorly conceived. You mentioned 1944, a new book by James Holland about a Sherman tank regiment, British, in 1944. They invented tactics that we now take for granted to work with the infantry, to have good communications with the infantry officers. I've puzzled, George. Does Russia work with infantry? Those big tanks are vulnerable to our weapons unless infantry is around the story. Well, the tanks were developed because the infantry was no longer uh, effective. It's because of machine guns and artillery. And the tanks were supposed to protect uh, the infantry. In the 1940s, that worked. The tanks protected the infantry. They were key. Now we have anti-tank weapons carried by infantrymen. And those infantrymen, it's very effective. First seen in 1973 in the Arab-Israeli War. And it was a Russian, an AT-3 Sager, that was used against Israeli tanks, destroyed a brigade. Now the infantry is the greatest threat that the tank has. Uh, an infantryman armed with an anti-tank weapon of modern sort can take that taken out. So you actually should push the infantry ahead of the tank, clearing the way, raising the question why you bring it in a tank. But in this particular case, the Russians stuck to a 1944 model. The tanks went in without infantry. And I think when the war is over, we will see they paid heavily for it. Communications. The puzzle has been raised again and again. Why is the Internet still working? But what can we say about the ability of a modern army to communicate to its many prongs? Well, it's one thing to have your own communications network. It will break down. It's difficult to to operate. But at least at the top levels, you can have redundant communications to get through. The real mystery is why they allowed the, uh, the defenders to communicate with each other. Clearly, there's communication because the infantry is converging on certain points and leaving it. But also, they allow the world to hear what was going on in the Ukraine. Wars are always miserable, but when you sh- are able to display it or discuss it, uh, that's really di- a mistake from a propaganda point of view. So in the case of Ukraine, uh, they didn't shut them down, which raises the question, do they understand modern warfare and its political aspect? And secondly, do they have the technology to shut down uh, communications? The puzzle also, George, is when we're looking at the story so far, is the war on the cities. You make the very salient point that a city is in a defensive posture from the beginning. And there is nowhere near enough troops here or time to take any of those large cities. So why are they doing it? It's very hard to understand. Uh, A city is the prize of war. It shouldn't be the battleground. If you're attacking an enemy, he knows that city. He knows the alleys. He knows all the ways around it. You are in a strange place. Every ambush that can be made will be made against you. In the past, armies hated to go into cities until after the war was won. They went into the cities because their armor 
really couldn't operate. They didn't have an enemy suitable for armor. Uh, they had to have some sort of campaign. So they wound up with a terror campaign, not bombing cities, but going to cities and trying to wipe out uh, the resistance. How do you tell the resistance from the population? Well, it's it. they did something. They were running out of things to do. George, the Russian general staff, it presents itself as professional. Have they read the story of Stalingrad? Do they know what that taught the Germans, their inability to take a, a city in ruin? Kharkiv and Kiev are long, are, are far from ruins. Those are battle positions. Well, I'll put it this way. Putin and I are in the same generation. We grew up in the Cold War. And in the Cold War, the tank was everything. The M60 tank we had, the T-54s they had, we built a war around that. I don't run a country. Putin does. Putin strikes me as having wanted to fight the Battle of the Fulda Gap, this key place in Germany, one time. And he, he created an armed force that really keyed off of what he learned in his time in the KGB in, in Germany. Now, does his staff know better? I suspect they know a lot better. But in this particular command structure, Putin could tell them what they did. And it's what I would do if I were reliving my youth. Surprise and speed. Surprise and speed. They've lost both if they ever had them. Is there a substitute for those? Overwhelming force, ruthlessly applied, creating a reign of terror. That's about all that's left. He doesn't have surprise. He can't break their backs uh, on surprise. Um, time, he doesn't have six months or a year or two years. This is not Afghanistan. He can't turn this into a 20-year war. He's got to end it because he loses all credibility if he doesn't. And so I would expect that he would now decide to bring in massive force uh, to basically crush uh, any opposition and intimidate uh, the citizens. Taking Kharkiv or taking Kiev, that doesn't end the war. We have Zelensky saying we will fight on the, well, he, he does Churchill. So Putin is hearing this. There's no end to that conflict. They can fight all the way to the West. But he has to win this war. He started it. He went in there to do two things. The first, to secure Ukraine as a buffer. And the second, to demonstrate to the world that the Soviets, the Russians, I'm sorry, are a world-class power. He's got to, on the second cast, show that no matter what diversity he has, he can win this war. The no-fly zone, it's bandied about now routinely capital to capital. Are we headed there, George, or is that a bridge too far? In this war, air power doesn't have much to lend it. That's why the Russians didn't do it. They didn't have targets. Unless they wanted to bomb the cities, uh, bombing you know, these minor concentrations was very inefficient. Therefore, for us to bring in uh, anti-air systems, that more systems like you know, other aircraft like the Polish want to bring in, it really is hitting them not at their weak point. They're, they're hitting them at their unimportant point. We have to hit them at their logistics, at their ability to supply their troops. And there are ways to do that from the air it doesn't work all that well, could be done. But the way to do that is to have a mobile infantry force, which they have, and move around and continually cut their supply routes. George Friedman is the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures. Don't hit the tank, hit the bread truck. This is CBSI in the World. I'm John Batchelor. 
PBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batchelor. Ukraine crisis leading to sanctions on the Russian Central Bank. I welcome Michael Bernstein of the Hoover Institution, who has been my guide to what we're watching in real time now, which is the deterioration of Russia's economy, starting with the Russian Central Bank's foreign reserves, a war chest of said to be in excess of $600 billion. Now gold that's in the basement of the Russian Central Bank and not much else. Michael, a very good evening to you. You outlined this some weeks before the worst of the crisis, and you said if Putin moves across Ukraine, this is what can be done to him. His economy will be in tatters. It seems that you were carefully presenting the worst-case scenario. It's here. It's upon us. So those Federal Reserve Uh, Those foreign reserves that were held at the Federal Reserve, at the Bank of Switzerland and Japan, all of that is no longer available to the Kremlin. Is that correct? No longer. They can't touch it. uh, Yes. Uh, 60% of their foreign exchange reserves, uh, $388 billion, are not available because of the Western sanctions. Directly not available because they're frozen in the West. But in addition to that, the goals that they have, and the Chinese bonds that they have are also cannot be sold on the market because of the sanctions, because private and state-owned Chinese financial institutions and private banks and private financial institutions anywhere are afraid that the sanctions will be applied to them and they don't want to deal with this. So another another. Uh, 150 or so billion is gone. And so 95%, 95% of all those 643 billion uh, foreign exchange reserves that the Central Bank uh, of Russia had is not available. 90, 95% is out of commission. All they have is a little cash in the basement. This means that the Russian Central Bank can no longer cover the private banks or the commercial banks that have been sanctioned individually. That was always the workaround for Russia. So right now, what is it that they have for a currency? Because the new sanctions include oil, their energy exports. Do they have anything to, to build, to, to hold on to, to build the economy around, Michael? The short answer is no and all, because... Now uh, they made certain steps which uh, put them uh, effectively on the verge of default because they closed all foreign exchange accounts for individuals. People can no longer withdraw uh, cash above $10,000 and no one in Russia now can buy dollars. So they can sell dollars if they have it somehow or somewhere. But they cannot buy them. So it's actually convertibility is gone. The government says, okay, if you want to withdraw your dollars from the bank accounts, you get them in rubles, not in dollars. Now, the worst part is that they cannot service their foreign debt. They have about $490 billion they owe to the West. Mostly it is private and state-owned corporations. The debt service payments are coming. And they cannot service them. So already, not me, but uh, rating agencies, Fitch, S&P, tell that they're on the verge of default. So the S&P has told them that the sovereign debt, the sovereign fund is going to fa- fail. The sovereign fund is going to fail. Is that sovereign debt or sovereign fund? 
sovereign debt and uh, not only sovereign debt. Sovereign debt is not so big. It's uh, something like 70 billion dollars. And then they may somehow manage as a last resort. But banks and state-owned corporations, private corporations, those oil companies, those natural gas companies, they cannot service their debt. So their entire economy, because there is $312 billion of corporate debt. That's a big item. They can service it. So the entire country will be in default. And some are in debt too. And the entire country will be in default. We corresponded and there was a calendar of, of, of debt due starting, I believe, in March, but certainly in April, of, of private corporations. And your remark was that they, they can't pay their bill. It, they have to pay in something other than rubles. So rubles are nearly worthless. Are those corporations going to fail, fall into receivership, be taken over? Uh, well, they can be taken over because they're in Russia. But what will happen that foreign creditors will give them a 30 days grace period. It is called technical default. Well, of course, within 30 days, unless the war is over and the sanctions are over, uh, they are in the same situation as they are today. And after 30 days, the creditors will have to decide either to declare default or somehow uh, start long negotiations for some kind of like haircuts and getting 10 cents of the dollar selling their debt. But the biggest part of this is psychological. For the Russians, they experienced huge default in 1998. So the greatest psychological, ideological, uh, national uh, hit to the conscience of the Russian people is the very word, the word default. When they hear default, for them their government is gone. For them the no governance. For them it is the statehood lost its foundation. That's how it will be in the mind of the Russian people. On March 5th, you write me that Russia passed a law allowing the debts to be paid in rubles, the interest, the dividends, the principal, rubles. Is that accepted? Rubles are, I don't know, under a penny, maybe maybe less than that right now. Do, can they force people to take rubles? Uh, they, they can force only those uh, creditors who are Russian residents. But foreign creditors, they cannot force. Uh, now the ruble is about half a penny. And uh, if if you live through the Great Depression, you remember there was a unit of accounting called MIL, M-I-L, which was one-tenth of a penny. It didn't exist physically. There was no MIL coin. But now ruble will be in MILs, no longer in pennies counted. And of course, no one wants those rubles. Even the Chinese don't want those rubles. The Russian Central Bank, does it have a strategy, a plan to your knowledge? They're sitting there watching this happen in real time. Uh, is China an exit? You've mentioned before the last time we talked that China is balking. Is that still continuing? Yes, uh, China is balking and uh, the Chinese uh, the, the banks and the Chinese companies already said that they will honor American sanctions. The Chinese government says that it is opposed to sanctions and the real economy, of course, uh, uh, honors sanctions. So let me put it this way. The Chinese don't put their money where their mouth is. We have then a Russian economy that's sinking and the Russian people know this. I asked a correspondent, what about food? Can they buy food? What about petrol? Can they buy petrol? They can buy it in rubles, 
But somebody has to accept the rubles as a converted, as a currency worth something. Is that going on? Because we could, we're talking about less than a penny for a ruble. Can you set a price and actually take the money and, and have some confidence you've been paid? Well, domestically, they will accept rubles. Uh, but they already have, they started to have shortages of medicines because most, uh, because they are very backward economy in that respect. And uh, the pharmacological industry is uh, no match to even some poorest uh, Western countries. And so most of their advanced medicines, important medicines were imported from the West. Now they don't have them. Now they have uh, shortages of dental materials. So lots of things. But eventually, yes, now it may come to food later this year because now farmers are saying that they don't have enough equipment and they don't have enough uh, inputs uh, to collect the harvest. The most recent sanction announced by the president of the United States, and I believe Britain's joining in this, is to sanction the oil sales. In other words, refuse oil sales. Are there workarounds for that? Are there markets that will take the Russian oil and under the table, black market, something like that for cash? The only the only way around it is this. If they sell it to the Chinese at huge discount and the Chinese resell it on the world market. But there are two problems. One problem is that now with the Chinese in oil sales, they're in the long-term contracts. So they were paid already, they were prepaid. And now they're shipping oil to China uh, effectively for free. Then the Chinese, now the difference between the Russian oil per barrel and Western oil of the same uh, quality is about $30 a barrel because no one wants to buy it. And it's not because of the president's sanctions, but because of the market, because of the reputational risks for banks who underwrite it and for traders who sell it. And so now the, uh, the, uh, the, the U.S. administration uh, banned about half a million barrels oil per day, which is not big because America was never a big importer of Russian oil, but about three million dollars, uh, I mean, excuse me, three million barrels, three million barrels of oil are already sort of out of the market of Russian oil because the traders the, uh, the owners of tankers, the banks that have to finance those transactions, they don't want to deal with them. Michael Bernstam of the Hoover Institution observing in real time the failure of the Russian economy and the suffering of the Russian people we can only imagine. Nowhere close to the Ukrainian suffering, but this is a world-scale catastrophe with uncertain ends. I'm John Batch. You're listening to CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. 